Today is Wednesday. It's February 7th, 2024. And hi, this is John Williams. This is the Mincing Rascals podcast, portions of which are broadcast Saturday nights on WGN Radio. And that's where you can hear me weekdays from 10 to 2. I'm Kate Flies, former Chicago reporter and columnist, now writing the Chicago History website, Roseland, Chicago, 1972. I'm Marge Halperin, political pundit, commentator, and uh, activist with Indivisible Chicago by day, communications consultant. I'm Eric Zorn, former member of the Tribune Union and former columnist at the Tribune. I now write the Picayune Sentinel, a weekly newsletter. I wonder what the metrics were on the work stoppage on the one-day strike last Thursday that the members of the Chicago Tribune staff had. Did, did you see any fallout on that? I didn't see any numbers, and I'm sure they don't make those numbers public. Uh, i got to maybe ask around, see if any sources that I still have in the newsroom might be able to know. I, you know I'm sure that they had some drop because it was not a big news day anyway. They did put out a paper on Friday, and it was the same length as mm-hmm. the usual Friday paper is. It had intern copy, it had wire copy, it had freelance copy. I don't know if someone who hadn't heard of the strike would even no- notice that it was a thing. And, and certainly the Tribune itself did not cover the strike, which I thought was infamous, actually. Um, I'm very critical of their decision not to even mention it. The Washington Post wrote about that its came own one-day strike. I noticed that. Do you think that came down from the top? Said do I not would, I would imagine. This? I would imagine that it did. It did not, however, prevent Mitch Pugh, who's the executive editor, or Phil Jurek, the managing editor, or Par Ritter, who's the uh, essentially the publisher, from issuing some sort of statement on social media, just kind of adverting to the fact that they support their newsroom and their people in the newsroom who haven't been given raises in like six years and whose four hundred one k's or contributions are being taken away. And who are struggling, a lot of them. I, I heard about one of my former colleagues is driving an Uber uh, in his spare time to to make enough money to make ends meet. And I just – I feel like the, the newspaper's failure as a, as a publication to cover what was obviously and arguably a, a relatively big news story in town. It was on – Every every other publication, every other media, the electronic media outlet, WGN covered it, both AM and yeah. uh, and the TV station, and for the Tribune to ignore it, and and that is a piece of news that is more vital to Tribune readers than anybody else, and they ignored it for some sort of corporate benefit, and and that that's a, just an abrogation of their journalistic responsibility. Uh, you you got to cover the stories, and if you don't do it without fear or favor, what good are you? If the readers have to look at this and say, uh, is this being filtered through the lens of what a bunch of hedge fund overlords in New York want them to publish? That's a question you don't want readers asking, and that's a question that you've got to be asking after this kind of decision. I'll get off my soapbox now, and we can have the podcast as I think that was pretty good. Sun-Times had the story. Uh, We interviewed some of the principals on the radio. I hadn't thought about it in those terms. I didn't even notice, to be honest with you, that the Tribune hadn't covered it. But touche, Eric. Well done. What do you do as a reader besides <laughs> the Monday strike yeah, yeah. to protest? I remember when the Sun Times laid off its entire photography staff. I canceled my subscription. I was like, "That's it. I will not give money to them anymore." And I, you know, fired off a, a letter about it. You know, which obviously no one ever read. It made no difference to anybody. And some years later, I came slinking back going, I don't want them to go out of business. I'll resubscribe. It's such a catch 22. Mm -hmm. What do we do as readers? Well, that's a really good point. And with something like 
the tribute, the sometimes photography staff, I think that they did uh, notice that you had canceled Kate because they did ultimately hire them back. So, so I think you you are very good job, that. Kate. Good job. But, Thanks. Okay, I'll keep it up. Thanks, Kate. But, but uh, you know, in terms of, I mean, I the the union uh, did not urge anyone to cancel a subscription. They just urged a one-day boycott. They wanted to show their power, flex their muscle. I hope that it it did it did impress Alden. I don't think it it did. But uh, it's what else can they do? They're sort of powerless. And I'm afraid that having a newspaper strike is very difficult in this Internet age when you can have freelancers just kind of contributing stuff over the transom. You don't have to have a a newsroom as such. In fact, I don't know the Tribune's going to even have much of a newsroom after Bally's kicks them out of the printing plant, which is supposed to happen in a few months. Uh, Maybe they'll be um, working out of coffee houses like some of the suburban reporters do. Larris, I was reading about the closing of some newspapers and magazines, uh, Sports Illustrated and some other newspapers across the country were in the headlines the last couple of weeks. And one of the analyses I heard was that a lot of these newspapers, say the Chicago Tribune, are still profitable. It's that they're not profitable enough for some of these business ventures. Is that true? And is that a fair point? Well, you know, they don't open their books to me, but I understand that they are all in this hoping for a 20 percent profit margin. Uh, that's what they said when they took over the paper. And, you know, like I said, they don't open their books. It's not a public company. They don't even return phone calls from reporters. So we don't know. To circle back a little bit to this, I mean, I think, yes, the answer is yes, they are profitable still. And they will hang on until they're no longer profitable. And they'll dump them because Alden is is a money firm. It's not a journalism firm. And, and they don't care about journalism. They don't care about their civic obligation. They want to put out whatever product is going to make the most money right, for them. Right, but journalistic firms should care about being profitable, too. I think that's, that's, that's not unimportant. Well, for years, there hasn't been a conflict like that because newspapers were printing money with classified ads that are no longer there and movie ads that are no longer there and a lot of car ads that are no longer there and real estate ads that are drying up and things like that. So, so, uh, but just to get back a little bit to this question about, about subscribing, I think you do have to sub, sub, I, support your local newspapers and your media outlets by subscribing to them and keeping them healthy. Uh, and certainly we do, and I hope that it, the listeners to The Mincing Rascals do, even though you've got misgivings about the the publication itself, even though you don't support everything they do, even though you don't like their editorials sometimes. It's, it's, it's part of what, you know, you want some of these reporters, you want A.D. Quigg in City Hall, you want Fran Spielman in City Hall, you want these, you know, you want uh, Greg Hines, you want these reporters asking the tough questions, holding the politicians to account, keeping an eye on them. Uh, if those kind of publications dry up and you're just left with, with um, you know, really small newsrooms and places that don't have the resources to do the investigations and, and follow up the way the way the bigger newsrooms do, your city is going to be in trouble and citizens are going to be in trouble and taxpayers are going to be in trouble. And uh, and the people who are going to be having a big party are going to be people who are, yeah. who are corrupt, the, right. the bad guys, the right. rascals, <laughs> yeah, the real really. rascals. It is about supporting the journalists. That's what I tell people. And they say, oh, I don't subscribe. That paper made me mad about this or that. Certainly the endorsement of Gary Johnson cost Tribune some of my more liberal friends subscriptions. But I I say what you just said, Eric, that I do think you have to support the journalism. Being a two-paper town is a rare gift for us Mm. as long as both papers can uh, prosper. So the answer is we're completely powerless. (laughs) Well, my attitude about it, I read the papers pretty regularly. That's a function of my job. I'd like to think I did it anyway because I want to be an informed citizen. But my mindset is 
support the journalism the same way you support a library or a museum you don't go to every day. Is it good for the city to have it? Yes, it is. Um, somebody's going to read it, and the politicians will pay the price for it and will benefit if we don't have it. So the same way you want the roads paved or to have world-class museums, you know in your heart you need the Tribune and Channel 11 and WGN Radio and so on and so forth. It's just an investment in our community. That will not sell, however. I mean, I know that to be the truth, but I don't think I'll get a lot of people to say, okay, here's my 28 bucks this week or month or whatever. Well, you, you bring that up. The Sun-Times is like 30 bucks a year for digital access to the Sun-Times, which which is too low, I think. I, yeah. I mean, it's I'm, – I'm, <laughs> Um, it's it's just too low. You, I think the, the paper needs more. It's they're subsisting right now a lot on on the uh, philanthropic help that they got in making the transition to join WBEZ. I don't know how long the Sun Times can keep going at thirty dollars a year, but it it does seem like a, a an investment like that you would make, as John points out, in the Art Institute, the the Lyric Opera. If you support them, the Old Town School of Folk Music, those kind of places that just need this kind of constant support that can't make it just on the on the fees that they charge. Yeah, and that's and that's that's the way the world works. And I think that's the way journalism is going to have to go. That you're going to have to have more institutions that are supported by donations, like ProPublica um, and uh, Justice Watch, Black Club. Black Club charges a subscription fee. I, I think it's. Was it seventy bucks a year, or something like that? I mean, it's at I'm least glad to, I'm, five. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to pay it. I I think Block Club Chicago is a is a great asset. It's a great resource to the city, and I'm really glad they're there because they're covering stories that the that the bigger papers aren't covering. What is the premium and, edition of the Picayune Sentinel cost? Uh, fifty dollars a year. And how many people are subscribing to that? You don't have to answer that, but I'm curious. No, I've got I've got about. 12,500 uh, subscribers to the um, uh, subscribers and something like 1,500 paid subscribers. I'm really encouraged by that, Eric. I think that's great. Yeah, I am too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm happy. I, I'm happy with it. So, yeah. and, and I, you know, I, I wanted when I started off, I was thinking like, I should charge less, but Substack doesn't let you charge less. And that's the, that's the lowest Substack. Oh, really? Charge. Really? Yeah. But you know, exactly. it is interesting, isn't it? That so now I've got Axios, and I've got Eric's Picayune Sentinel, and I've got Block Club Chicago. I've got all these little—I don't want to call them niche sites—but it's not the big mastheads. Sometimes Tribune, WGN. It's all of these other little ways that you pick and choose to get your information. I'm not sure what's the better model for us. It's like television now, right? You want yeah, to get Hulu and Peacock and Apple TV and yeah. all these different outlets. I I think your point, though, about the niche publications, I think you also want to, I also want to support and do the Washington Post, New York Times, Atlantic. Atlantic yeah, Monthly, yeah. Atlantic Monthly, these national publications that do some very deep dives into important topics. So you're, you are choosing your own media digest those of us who can afford to do so that can afford to do so is uh we we've talked on in the past marge you weren't on the podcast when we did but we have spent some time talking about how these newspapers could monetize clicks there's lots of times what was it i was trying to go to today i I don't subscribe to washington post i did and i wanted to read an article and i couldn't get past the paywall if they had said okay they had some offer for me to read the article, but I want them to charge me a penny for that read. 
or a dime. I would have given him a dime. If I had a credit card on file and I could read the Denver Post, pick the newspapers around the country or magazines, I can't subscribe to them all, but I would pay them for the read, and I don't need to, but I would pay them for the, the clicks. There's no system yeah. set up like that. What they really should be doing is the YouTube model, right? You go to watch something on YouTube, you have to watch an ad before your video starts. Okay, fine. So places I don't subscribe to, like John, like the Washington Post, I'd be happy to watch an ad pop up on my screen that they would obviously get paid for showing me in order to read the article. Um, it's it's hard to understand why they're not doing that. Yeah, yeah. This is like a debate that I've heard for years in the theater community. You're married to the subscription model. It's money up front. It gives you some operating capital. Um, and the idea of going show by show makes a lot of companies nervous. They in more than with good reason. Um, and yet somebody like Second City, you can't subscribe to them. Uh, and they're a for-profit successful business. So it's a leap you have to take away from the subscriber model. Hmm. But your idea is one way to supplement, and there are others, but I think it's hard to take the mindset away from the way historically they made money. And it, and it might be that you could do something like have it so that if you live in, say, the Chicago metro area, you you could not have uh, a YouTube-style access. You could geofence us outside. Geofence yeah. so you say, say that if, if you're coming in from Denver and you want to read an article in the Chicago Tribune about Mayor Johnson because you're curious about that, then you've got to watch an ad. But if you're in Chicago, you have to be a subscriber to read more than whatever it is, 10 articles a, a month, so, something like that. But yeah, I mean, this is a problem that's been vexing this industry for 20 years now, ever since the internet began, began just eating its lunch. And I don't have a lot of uh, optimism about the future of print journalism. I, I don't think that in a couple of years we're going to have daily print products delivered to doorsteps. I just think that the, those people who get those products delivered every day to their house are dying off. I mean, it's, it is not something that – I mean, my kids are – in their 20s and early 30s, and they don't subscribe to a daily newspaper. They get all their news on their phones and their computers, and 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 they're not like weirdos. They're, they're, this is this how people are getting their information these and days. And a lot of they're times not, they're getting it for free too. Yeah, they are. Um, but but uh, I, I I don't see this idea of killing a bunch of trees and then uh, putting the you know, on ink on paper and then delivering it to your doorstep eight to twelve hours later is going to survive. You you know you get you get the the Tribune in the morning. It doesn't have the the evening sports scores from the last the night before, and at some point people are going to say like this isn't the way we do things in the 2020s. As long as the Tribune journalists write news and do their job, we shouldn't worry about how they get that information on their phone, on their tablet, and a newspaper printed on paper. As long as that exists, it's what the AM radio industry is facing. We don't care, at least I don't, if you listen to me on a radio. What if you listen to me on a phone or on a computer or on your streaming service? You say, hey, Siri, play WGN radio. I was told, I can't verify this sitting here, but more of our listeners now listen to us on the stream than do on radios. They, people are getting them from smart speakers more than mm -hmm. on dashboards or home units. Again, this has been going on for 20 years. They're trying to figure out a way, can you make internet digital delivery of the news as profitable as, as ink on paper delivery of the news? Should Joe Biden do a Super Bowl interview? CBS has offered him a 15-minute conversation to be posted or streamed online. 
a few minutes of it would then be broadcast on TV before the game. For the second year in a row, the president has said no thank you. His aides say voters are exhausted from the campaigns, such as they are already. And they just want to watch the game. Seeing the president during the festivities will turn them off. It is a campaign opportunity that they don't want. At least that's one way to put it. Another way is they're afraid he's going to do badly. What's your advice to Joe Biden? If, if I'm a Joe Biden campaign strategist, and unfortunately uh, that means I don't have the guts to tell him he shouldn't be running anymore. So instead, I would tell him, <laughs> don't do this interview. Please don't do this interview. Uh, I mean, clearly, they know him. And that's what they're telling him, right? I mean, so those of us out here have a, a spectrum of opinion on whether or not we think he's doing well or not based on the last time we saw a snippet of him on the news. Um, and some people will say, oh, he looks just fine. And other people will say, well, didn't you see him You know, at this event when he said this or that? Clearly... They're limiting his um, his appearances, and, and they know what his abilities are. So that must be what his abilities are. Right, so that's the right um, answer. The right answer yeah. would be don't do it because they've determined that he's not actually up to it, which is funny because it's Gail King, Marge. It's, it's not Sean Hannity sitting there. It's not Tucker Carlson he's going to sit down with. Gail will throw him some softballs. It's not a time for any gotcha stuff. What would you say? I think it's not, uh, I would not jump to the conclusion that they said no because they didn't think he could handle it. I would say no to him if I were advising him because you will be airing the clips, however safe the interview is, to a stadium where half the people are not supporting you, half the people in this country, and they'll be drunk. So I don't think you want to hear the president's best comments and I would trust that he could say some really good things. Well, I, I disagree with Marge, and I and I agree in part with Kate. I think he should definitely do it if he is up to being president for another four and a half years. If he's if he's seriously up for doing that, then he should, ought to be up to talking to Gail King before the Super Bowl. It's a huge audience, and if he can appear on if he could appear on an interview like that and come off as competent and and uh non-demented and non-senescent then he ought to do it because that's a big part of his problem right now which is that people think he's too old and if you come if he can come on as someone who speaks clearly thoughtfully knows his stuff then that that will go some distance in erasing this idea that he's not capable of being president if his campaign people think he can't handle gail king before the super bowl for 15 minutes then then he really ought to get out of the race. I mean, I, and, and I and I I wish that he would. Honestly, I still wish that he would. I think he's done a good job. How do you think it would go? I, I, I think but, you wish that he would be good at it. Do you think he would be good at it? I think he could be. I think it, may, it might depend on. <laughs> Your Honor, he's avoiding on, the question. On, on his, I, well, yeah, yes, I think he, I think he probably would. But I think he would be prepared. Uh, he's going to have to do some debates, unless Trump doesn't want to debate him. Uh, he's going to have to do some debates, and debates are a lot more stressful. A lot more. I mean, uh, debates are going to be ninety minutes where you're getting hostile questions and you're getting you're confronted with your adversary. This is this is Gail King talking to Joe Biden, saying, "Joe, you know, people are," and she'll ask some 
somewhat difficult questions. She's not going to ask softball questions, but but she's not going to get into an argument with him. And if he can't handle that, then what's he doing running for president? I, I, I don't just think he can handle my, it or his people would be having him do this. And he's, I, you know, I, I don't know his exact um, record here, but I think we all know he's not holding the kind of press conferences and the kind of one-on-one interviews that we're used to seeing. And that's why. And that's what I'm saying. They know what his abilities are and they're not letting him do this. I draw a different conclusion, but I will say this. If I worked for him, I would not only tell him don't do it, I would be reaching out to try to negotiate for Taylor Swift to appear with him. She's a supporter. Let's do the interview with Taylor Swift and you know it'll go well. Except that half the half the stadium doesn't like her anymore either. <laughs> That's another problem. <laughs> By well, the way, Trump the- has already challenged him to a debate. Trump has already uh, challenged him to a debate, which, of course, they were able to, you know, laugh off. Oh, come on. You know, it's still the primaries. You know, picking up on what you were saying, Eric, that debates will be worse. I actually think that they are going to come up with reasons for him not to do the debates because absolutely he will not be able to. I would not do many. Well, I would not do many. Trump won't do that well either. Trump is not hitting on all cylinders himself <laughs> these days. I so know, I- but he <laughs> is out there doing these public appearances and extemporaneous talking. He wants <laughs> Trump to do it. Steamroll. Yeah. He's incoherent half the time. He is a disaster in a debate against somebody who actually has facts, which I guess I have more faith in Biden than either of you do. I I really feel that he has plenty on the ball and could certainly handle a debate and could certainly handle a Gail King interview. Again, I think there's other reasons why they want to pace his well, public well, appearances. Well, I would say, but this is like a free ad. It's like 15 minutes in front of in front of how many millions, tens, hundreds of millions of viewers. Yeah, uh, it's a, it's 15 free minutes. I how how do you turn that down? Sports audience is not a news audience. It's not a political audience. I think it's a negative place to be speaking. I think a lot could go wrong, at least with this president in that in that situation. Safe as it is, I don't share Eric's enthusiasm for Joe Biden's ability to handle something like this well. Were he Barack Obama, who did these things really well, yeah. Donald Trump said no one year. Maybe the last thing to consider, though, when you ask yourself about this is not can Joe Biden handle it or is it good politics for him, but do people want it? I don't know that it would be missed. I don't even know that it would be conspicuous by its absence because at the football parties, everybody's walking around. There's a lot of noise. They're all eating chips and nobody's going, hey, where's that three minute clip of Joe Biden from the 15 minutes that CBS recorded with Gail King before the game? It's a non-issue if he doesn't do it. I think the risk outweighs the benefit. For anybody who doesn't have some issues going on, though, how could it be a risk to sit down with with, uh, with Gail? Right. Well, the audience. Every communication decision is based on the audience. And your communication's pro, so Marge's advice to him, knowing who he is and what it would be, would be... Don't do it without Taylor. 
the half of the audience that you think might boo Taylor Swift is a half of the audience that wouldn't vote for Joe Biden anyway. That's if, right. if you're playing for the middle, the, the new voters, the young voters, the suburban moms, I don't know who else Taylor picks up that Joe Biden doesn't already get. But I, I think that would be a net positive if he could get that as contrived as that would appear. I mean, all the people who think there's a conspiracy out there about Taylor Swift, that would be their moment of truth. I told you so, they'd say. Yeah, I told you she was progressive and liberal and going to vote Democratic. We know that. You know, the the challenge in this election is not going to be able to, is not talking Trump supporters away from their support of Trump. That That's not going to happen. I've certainly dealt with some of them online. You can't, you, you, you can't shame them out of supporting Trump. They, no. they, they like, I don't know what they like exactly about Trump, but they do like him and they like his attitude. They, they, uh, they like that he, he, um, is misogynist creep. I don't know what it is they like about him, but they do really like him. The, the goal of this campaign has got to be to excite and inspire these younger voters, people who are, who tend to be uh, some of the ethnic minority voters who tend to vote Democratic, who are wavering, who are sitting on the fence, who are just disengaged. It's going to be about firing up your base, getting them out to vote. Um, making sure that people realize the stakes of the election because you're not going to talk Trump supporters out of supporting Trump, you know, like the Lincoln Project tries to do. It's just not going to happen. Eric came on our radio show and also opined on his Picayune Sentinel something about whether or not the Chicago Board of Education should be a body of people who are voted on or appointed by the mayor. The new law in Illinois now says that the Chicago Board of Education will be an elected body, maybe in two tranches. Eric was actually wondering if we just ought to vote for everybody all at once and just get the thing over with. But in principle, I think Eric and I ended up in different places. I'm wondering what our panel thinks about should a Board of Education, maybe the Chicago Board of Education, the second largest student body in a country? Should that be appointed by the mayor? Should that be the mayor's job? Or should it be an elected body? Rich Daly took that on. I still don't know why Um, he would want that. I still don't know why a mayor would even want that responsibility. At the time, everybody was really impressed with him for being willing to take that on. And it was kind of taken as a, oh, wow, you know, if he wants this responsibility... Um, he must really, he's willing to wear the jacket. You know, things are going to get done. We're going to have great schools now. Well, you know, for people who are very much in favor of, of school choice, of course, he did basically usher in the current era of the mat- magnet schools and get some more high quality high school magnet, magnet schools sure. together. Um, and the, yeah, the charters too. But so your question, John, are, is, I mean, we don't have this choice, right? It was passed in Springfield back in 2021, I think. So it's going to happen. We are going to have an elected school board, but you still want to argue the point of whether or not we should? Uh, Eric's point is a little more nuanced. It's in what order, you know, should we do them all at once or in these two groups? But I just wonder what what sure. did you think about that? I th- I don't like the idea of a mayor having that much authority. I'm not sure that him wearing the jacket is necessarily going to necessarily going to make the schools better. When they passed this law, they did make it so that we're starting out with a hybrid system. Yeah. Uh, at least the way it is right now, it's supposed to be that we're going to elect uh, – we're going to have 20 or 21. 21, and we'll elect members. 10 okay. at first. Yeah, later. and right. So initially, only 10 will be elected, and the other 10 will still be Brandon Johnson appointees. 
And then plus the, in two plus years, the head of the plus the head of the board, right? Plus it's, the head of the board, he gets right, to appoint the president anyway. And then in two years, then we elect the other ten members of the school board. Johnson was actually one of the people negotiating this back in 2021 when he worked for CTU. They wanted it to be all elected right away. But as I'm sure Eric talked about, the deal now is that they would really like it to be to to CTU and Brandon Johnson now want to keep that hybrid system because now he's in power, which means CTU is in power. So they'd like to keep those 10 appointments. I'm not in favor of 100% elected school board. I was the communications director at Chicago Public Schools during what they called the United Nations Board. I think we had 15. It was um, ponderous at best to sit through a meeting. You had a representative of the Muslim community that complained about pork in the cafeterias. You had legitimately uh, also Um, but also uh, Latino representatives who had overcrowded schools at the time and nothing was being done about it. You had to, for every issue, listen to all the constituencies, relevant or not, to that issue. Um, And very little got done, I'm going to say. Very little got done. Electing individual members based on a local constituency, I don't think is the best thing for a citywide body like this. I'd like to see it blown up. I'd like to see small districts. I think it's too big. The fact that you're going to have 20, 20 board members it is crazy. Um, and it indicates just how big this district is and how diverse our city is in their education needs um, and how I think that we suffer from having this one giant school board. Daly's feeling at the time, as I understood it, was he's going to wear the jacket anyway. Mm-hmm. So um, let him have actual control because what was happening, the circus that was going on at the board, he didn't have anything to do with it. He didn't have any accountability. Half the members, if not a majority, were elected, were appointed by the governor. It was just hard to get agendas to mesh in favor of the children. How does the mayor exert any influence then? Does the mayor then kind of work it backwards for me? So you're the mayor and you're now responsible for the performance of kids in the classrooms. How does a good mayor get better scores. I I could see not voting for him because it was bad and you were mad, but I just wonder if that's the right person to be making any decisions on behalf of the schools. What decisions would he make? How how does his influence extend down to the classrooms to actually make a difference? Like, okay, you're my education mayor. I'm going to vote for you. What could he do? It depends on who he appoints to his school board, and it depends on who he appoints to be his superintendent. Uh, his or hers, it could, you know, obviously the mayor could end up being a woman, will end up being a woman someday, I'm, I'm sure again. The the problem, I mean, I, I pointed this out to you before in this, which is that when you have these elected school boards, first of all, one of the reasons that the Chicago Teachers Union doesn't want immediate elections of all of the of the school board members, first for the reason that Kate said, is why would they want to do that when they've got <laughs> a, a former member of their of yeah. their lobbying team as mayor. They yeah. don't need. They, they've got they've got the control they want right now. They don't need an election. They can, all that's going to happen in an election is they're going to lose power. So they're not interested in that. But the other thing is that that in order to field twenty candidates, it's going to take a lot more money than fielding ten candidates. And they're not ready for that yet. They don't have the people in place. They're 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 gearing up for ten elections, not twenty. And and so and and what happens in places like Los Angeles, which is the biggest school district that has elections, I believe, 
literally tens of millions of dollars get poured into these races from all over the country, from advocates of, of charter schools and voucher programs on one side to teachers union people on the other side. And these become these incredible proxy wars over education policy. And of course, the voters don't clue into these things. Voters tend, I mean, they, there tend to be low turnout elections and voters are bombarded by ads and and uh, it becomes kind of this grubby political system. I would rather have one person be ultimately responsible for the performance of the schools, judge him or her the way you, you want to and say, OK, uh, Mayor Emanuel, Mayor Daly, uh, uh, you know, Mayor Lightfoot has been good, has been bad for the schools. Uh, I want to hold him or her to account for that. Uh, I want I want a different superintendent. I want different policies here. But to try to say, okay, I've got now. I've got to go figure out first of all who, what district do I live in? Yeah. Who's my who's my <laughs> school board representative? Yet. And are they going to be responsive to me? Who whose tune are they dancing to? What if I live in a what if I live in a district that's elected someone who's like wildly pro voucher and I I'm anti voucher? What's that person going to listen to me? Is, is is there a way that I can express myself on that? So I I'm really skeptical of it. I mean I, I like democracy, I really do, but I, I just feel like in this case, the the democratic answer, the you know small d democratic answer is to hold a mayor accountable, someone who you know, someone whose performance you can evaluate. I agree. I think it's going to be an absolute mess. I mean, we all believe in democracy, but we're all so sick of campaigning and political ads. And now we're laying on top of what we already have a whole nother set. And so now we're going to be electing everyone we're already electing, then throw on the school board members. And then you got local school councils. And now we've got the local smaller uh, police councils. I mean, come on, people don't have time, just like with judges. But at least with judges, you can go rip out from the newspaper yeah, the yeah. Uh, the list of judges recommended by the Bar Association and, and just use that. But that's supposed to be neutral and not political. This will be completely different. You were saying, John, like, what can the mayor do? Like, right now, we've got the issue of school choice. Johnson d- wants to change the system that we currently have now. And and there's, you know, right or wrong, I'm not even necessarily going to advocate one way or another, but that is a gigantic issue. Do people no longer want to have choice in where their kids go to school? Do they want to only have the choice of their neighborhood school? That's what he wants to do. And his current appointees, that's what they have said they're setting the current five-year plan to be before an elected school board even gets put in place. Well, and there's also the issue of cops in schools, which is uh, apparently right. quite urgent. Right these days, they're going to make a decision very soon about that, about whether whether uh, local schools, <clears throat> high schools, and and uh, middle schools, I guess, uh, can have uh, Chicago police officers in them. And and the mayor seems to be t- telling his school board that he wants them to to ban the use of police officers in schools. And then you see stories like I think it was Taft High School where they surveyed the parents and the and the community, and they found out that like eighty percent of them think that having a resource officer in the school is a good idea. So why shouldn't that be a local decision? 
Um, and this is a decision that that is coming from the mayor and his handpicked school board. Um, and we can hold the mayor responsible for that. If this were a school board of diffuse people whose names we probably don't know uh, because they we don't even know who our particular uh, district representative is, it becomes one of these things like decisions that just get made that you don't have any any control over. Well, but so you don't. I mean, them. the mayor is going to be in office for four years, and you've elected this guy because you thought he was going to be good on real estate taxes or crime or whatever, And but now he's the education are too, and education is going to be a function of his view of the things. Maybe this sounds naive, but I would prefer that people have a, a say in that, on, on these issues per se, where you would elect school board members who reflect your opinion on it. And Eric, if you live in the wrong district, welcome to democracy. There are some Republicans <laughs> in Chicago too, you know. I'm surprised that you guys, who I don't think are all great fans of everything that Brandon Johnson is doing, are happy to hand him the keys and say, okay, you drive the bus now. Does anybody anywhere have an ongoing, always hybrid school board where the mayor gets to appoint half and the other half are elected? Because that could potentially even things out. That, that sounds it's like a compromise, doesn't it? That's not the plan. But for two years, we'll have that. Marge, what were you going to say? First, to your last point, I, I don't think anyone who voted for Brandon Johnson is surprised to see he has a particular point of view about education. I mean, we knew that about him, uh, I think, when the election happened. Um, the the question that relates to Kate's point about choice, um, not choice in the sense of vouchers, let's be clear, but your ability to apply for your right. child to go to another right. public school uh, in a different neighborhood or nearby, whatever you want, um, this is an example, and I think the same with the police in the schools, where um, there's an aspirational decision that doesn't match operational capacity. So right now, uh, many neighborhood schools are inadequate. They're not teaching a quality education. Sadly, they're in those neighborhoods that are underserved in many different ways. So if you abruptly make that switch, you're hurting the students who most need to move. On the other hand, those are the students who um, take least advantage of the opportunity. Let's educate the parents about what the options are and how to find the right school. Even among two good schools, you can have a feeling about which your child is better suited to um, because of the atmosphere, because of uh, uh, various things that have to do with your child's personality. So um, having that opportunity to match your child to a school, I think, is a benefit. If all the schools were grade A schools, you wouldn't need to move so much. But we're not there yet. And I think that decision and the decision about police, I'm not in favor of police in schools, and I wouldn't want that in my child's school. But if parents do, they would have reasons for that, and they should be able to. But I think that accountability to the mayor, uh, there's no substitute for it. Speaking of narrow margins, I'm thinking about the vote in the uh, Congress today. It, it was, was it was two sixteen to two four. It was two votes that's, that uh, he uh, the impeachment motion lost by two votes, and yeah. this was on on Tuesday, I think. They were literally pulling them out of hospital beds and wheeling them in there, so or, or not showing up and surprising them when they thought they had the votes. So that's Mike Johnson's embarrassment now. Maybe the Congress was just too busy trying to impeach the Homeland Secretary to bother with border protection. But when Joe Biden essentially called right-wing Republicans bluff and gave them much of what they had asked for, they still turned it down. After four months of daily negotiations, Senate Democrats handed them the power to close the border, 
when as few as 4,000 migrants showed up on any given day. That's less than half of the daily surge we've seen lately. And the end of catch and release. 4,000-plus new asylum officers to process claims more quickly. Tougher standards for asylum claims. Work permits for those who get a positive determination on their status. Wouldn't that be great? If if you were determined to be here legally or rightfully, then, in fact, you would get a work permit. That was part of the bill. Aid to some organizations providing resources to some migrants. Maybe that's one thing that some Republicans didn't like. But if you scored this, this was on paper a win for Republicans. The House said it would be dead on arrival. Senators got cold feet, and now nothing's going to happen with what was what the Wall Street Journal said was the toughest migration bill in decades. The Washington Post said something like, this is what happens when the dog catches the car. It's like, oh, now what am I going to do with this thing? And they are turning it down. Doggone it. This was a real golden opportunity. And I guess it's just for the simple reason that Donald Trump and Mike Johnson don't want it. And so... It's not going to happen. What a lost opportunity. I say good riddance to the opportunity. They caved too much. They gave too much. And by the way, on the other side was aid to Ukraine. Well, it was going to be aid to Ukraine, aid to Israeli, uh, the Israelis, aid to Palestinians, etc. But those were some of the principles, at least on the immigration front. That's where the battle was largely being fought. And you think that the president and the Democrats were giving too much there. What would you have asked for, Marge, that they did not get? Or what were they giving away that you wish they hadn't? I think they they limited uh, they made an arbitrary limitation on uh, asylum claims based on X number. You know, I, I you could show up at the border with the legitimate claim. I'm sorry, you know, 500 people were in front of you. You can't come in now. I think that arbitrariness is not the American way. It's not the Ellis Island theory and of welcoming all with open arms that our country's always been. Um, they're building a portion of the wall in there, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, I just think they just took the whole GOP platform. They gave up on dreamers. They, you know, this is not a democratic, there's no compromise in there. Dick Durbin it, said he was going to hold, hold your nose and accept. That's what Dick GOP. Durbin said he was going to do. And he's the DACA guy. Even Dick Durbin, though, was going to vote for it, Marge. Because... I know he was. And I don't think he should. And meanwhile... What about the root question? There's two root questions. A, Trump says, no, I want to run on this. I want the border to be as chaotic as possible throughout the election. And the GOP elected Congress people who are representing what's good for the country say, "Okay, boss, we're going to keep it and we're going to make it as big a mess as we can at the border. And we're going to complain about what a mess it is. So they gave into that. But secondly, what is happening with aid to Ukraine? Why is Tucker Carlson in Moscow? Is he getting a Putin interview? Yes. He's there. Yes. It looks like he is, yeah. right? Yeah. And why Why is the GOP, led by the uh, Putin friend-in-chief, so set on making Russia more powerful? Well, do you think the play here is bad then for the Republicans? Because the Democrats, like you said, Marge, gave in too much. They completely compromised. If it's border security you want, they gave it to them at their mm-hmm. at their own risk. And Republicans still said no. So it does make the point that Republicans are not interested. This is the Wall Street Journal. They said, do Republicans just want more chaos until the election, or do they want border security? They're answering it by their failure on this bill. Um, maybe that's a win then 
for the Democrats, even if they don't get what they want. I mean, if the problem the problem is that immigration, this this whole situation, the border is really a drag on the Democratic party right now it's it, it there's a sense that the border is out of control and i'm not sure how you know how to evaluate those claims i'm not down there but certainly you know the the migrant situation in chicago gives a sense that that there is not a control we're not we, we're not securing our borders uh there are lots of people coming sort of rushing across the border and they're not stopping enough of them and so i mean there's a, there's a real sense that this is a, a extreme liability for democrats that the, and for some reason people who are in parts of the country that are not affected by this at all are particularly energized by, <laughs> yeah. by immigration, yeah. and and yeah. I, you know, I, I would hate to call anybody racist, but it does seem uh, like this is not a kind of concern that we had when a bunch of people from Ukraine were coming in, for instance, um, refugees from the from the war there. Um, so, so I, my guess is that this bill was crafted by Democrats who looked at some a lot of internal polling numbers and said, "How are we going to to mute this issue, blunt this issue for Democrats, and have it be so that." Uh, we, Voters will think of the Democrats as being part of the solution. And this seems like a really good uh, – it was a good poker play on their part. The fact that the Republicans have nixed it indicates that they don't really care about the border at all. They care about it as an issue. Donald Trump had two years where he had both both houses of Congress and the presidency, and he didn't do much about about uh, immigration. It's, it's like you know he wanted to build the wall. So Mexico is going to pay for the wall. It's all nonsense. So he wants the issue. He wants to be able to hammer Biden on on immigration. I get, I guess, I get letters from conservatives all the time talking about this, and and that was what they they tried to do. I'm not sure why they have to put immigration and Ukraine and Israel all into the same bill. You can't do that like in Illinois. They don't allow bills to be all jammed together. We have a, a bunch of different. You know, you, you like this, but you got to take these two pills that you don't like. If you well, that was the that. only way you were going to get your aid to Ukraine, though, Eric. Right. right. Well, but, you know, that to, to, to lump them all together, you know, it's like, you know, you're sort of putting the putting the medicine into the applesauce. Right. And that's I, I don't think that that's the, the way it should go. I, I think that people should vote up or down on various uh, on, on individual uh, initiatives and not on not on a whole package of things that half of which you don't like. That's what they're going to do next. Right. They're bringing the aid votes on the Senate side. They're bringing them to the floor separately. I would like that, too. It would be easy to be cynical and say, well, that's a terrible thing if you're horse trading on these all-important issues. They shouldn't be linked together. But that is what happens. The interests are all legitimate, the border, Israel, Ukraine. And if I have strong feelings about one thing and you have strong feelings about the other, maybe it's not unreasonable to expect us to compromise some of our values in dollars so that we get something else we want in exchange. That's politics. That's not a bad thing. I, I, maybe you're right. I, I, I know that there's a, a real movement among in the Democratic circles to really hammer on this, and I, and I hope that it works, uh, that you're able to you pull some people who are in the middle on immigration, who are concerned about immigration, um, and are concerned about the way Biden's handled it, but ne- don't necessarily want give to give, give everything over to Donald Trump because of that. If you can convince them that Biden made a good faith effort to meet them halfway or more than halfway, if you you know, in Marge's uh, take on it, that uh, this would make them realize that that uh, in fact the Democratic position is more reasonable and something that they would want to uh, they would want to follow. Rob Warden had a great idea in the letter that you published in the uh, Tuesday Picayune Sentinel. What Trump should do is come out with a public statement saying that it's not true that he told the Republicans to vote against 
the immigration bill. He, he didn't say that he was he's all for it. And, you know, so it's still all Joe Biden's fault that it didn't happen somehow. He really wants to, you know, still have that border security. For he's it. already on record doubling down and of saying, course, yeah, course. blame me. I'm, I'm happy to Trump. spike that bill. Yeah. He said he's Trump, though. He could do that. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a fabulous idea from Rob Warden because he could totally get away with it. But what it made me think of when I read it was. You know, Biden right now is being quoted saying, "Okay, fine, they voted it down. And now for the entire campaign, I'm going to be saying it's all Trump's fault. It's all the Republicans fault. What's going on at the border right now? But the Republicans all this time have also been saying that he could do most of this himself without a vote of Congress. Boy, I haven't heard that spin on it or that. So he could appropriate money for all of those other asylum well, he, officers. He can't, appropriate, he can't appropriate his own money. So I know he can't appropriate money as they were doing in that bill. But presidents have been doing things under their, you know, making their presidential rulings on what they're going to do at the border. They do have a lot of latitude. There is some news coverage. I'm looking quickly at an AP story that says without changes to immigration law or more funding to manage the growing number of asylum seekers, there isn't much Biden can do that will really stick. I'm reading from the Wall Street Journal editorial. By any honest reckoning, this is the most restrictive migrant legislation in decades. Previous immigration talks have involved trading security measures for legalizing more immigration. There is little of the latter in this bill. Nothing for nearly all of the dreamers who were brought here illegally as children. No general pathway to citizenship for green cards. All those things the Democrats always wanted, they're not asking for just so they can get the aid for Ukraine and movement in these other areas. They're giving Republic. That's why Marge doesn't like it. They're giving away the store here. I I think a lot of times we say, okay, fine, then give them that and then just get the thing done. They gave them that. Mike Johnson said, this is even worse than we thought it would be. I thought, (laughs) talk about just being able to say anything with no tether to the truth. The 78, that parcel of land where the White Sox are going to go. Marge, was that something that you wrote to the Sun-Times about this week? It is. I had a letter in the Monday Sun-Times suggesting this is yet another area where uh, City Hall could be far more transparent. But it's not just this administration. It's a tradition going back pretty far uh, where the deals are done with developers in private, Um, The negotiations, to some extent, need to be private, but not entirely. And they could uh, have some public input up front with some basic criteria. For instance, I'd like to hear the mayor say, uh, yeah, we're talking with them, we're negotiating details, but don't worry, there will be no public financing, because I won't allow it, because I know taxpayers don't want that. I'd like to hear that, for example, also from local aldermen, of which we have several, although it's in Third Ward Alder and Pat Dowell's ward, but many area aldermen. We have five in the near south area where I live. Um, So what happens always is they negotiate the deal. They come out with a big slick presentation. um, And then they hold a couple town halls where people can speak. Or the way Lightfoot used to do it, you couldn't speak, but you could write (laughs) thing down on a card and turn it in. And the people running the meeting would 
read it if they wanted, or as I actually saw with the card I submitted once on the casino question, start to read it, then pause and edit it as they go along because they didn't want to say what I actually was saying. Um, so there's no public input of any meaning that happens after the deal is done. But what's happening with this proposed White Sox deal where they would move to the South Loop? What has happened so far that you feel they aren't being sufficiently transparent about? Well, uh, the mayor uh, and third ward alderman Pat Dowell have suggested this will be a good deal. Uh, Dowell has added a clause saying there needs to be discussion about uh, traffic patterns, environmental impact, what happens with guaranteed rate field which is a huge question for the city. You know, we're facing the prospect, if you believe that the Bears are interested in the South lot as a potential site for a new stadium, and I don't know if we believe that, but if you do, we could end up with a an abandoned stadium, two abandoned stadiums, basically across the road from each other. Um, and what are we going to do with it? We're left holding, not only holding the bag on a, on a vacant site, but... The financial bag, because we still, we the taxpayers, owe $50 million on the current Sox Park and $640 million on Soldier Field on a bond issue that actually was under $400 million to begin with. But because it was refinanced repeatedly by prior mayors, it's now ballooned up to $640 million. So we owe about $700 million combined on these two stadiums that could be empty shells in a matter of time if the mayor thinks that's a good idea to negotiate and that, rams it through the city council. Right. That would be a we scenario where the where the Bears go to Arlington Heights, the Sox move to the South Loop, and those other two properties are sitting there without a team in either of them. The Bears pay a penalty, though, if they leave early, right? But not enough to make up for the difference on that on that bond. Representative Cam Buckner has suggested uh, and I think put forward a bill that I don't believe has passed, uh, but it's, you know, waiting committee suggesting that if they're going to go to Arlington Heights, um, any state uh, impetus or involvement in that should include a requirement that they pay off the remainder of the financing on the old side. So you're not saying should the stocks go to the South Loop, but you're just saying whatever they decide to do should be more in the open. I read the mayor and yes. alderman's comments as just being opining like we all are about it in general. You make it sound as though stuff is actually transpiring. Things are actually taking place behind closed doors. Is is that also true? Well, we've seen leaked drawings, um, only leaked that no one will confirm. Um, I uh, am one of the organizers of a community group here in the near south, and we've invited both Related Midwest, which is the developer in charge of the seventy eight. Uh, and Alderman Dowell uh, to come separately or together to come talk to us about what is being discussed. And they both said it's premature. <laughs> so, oh, wow. uh, you know, they want to nail a deal before they come talk to anybody. And that'll be too late. The train will have left the station and we've all been railroaded. You know that they're making their deals. I see what you mean, John, that I guess you can take what what Mayor Johnson has said so far, and and also uh, Pat Dowell as just being um, encouraging. But one thing for sure is that Brandon Johnson is immediately accepting the concept of the 78 because he said nothing about, well, maybe we should look at keeping them in Bridgeport and redeveloping over there. So he immediately has taken that step to 78 is fine. 
and and just bypass that entire public conversation. And, you know, I, I know I already said it, but I, I do feel like it's a complete insult to the South Side in Bridgeport. I get to that. Just I get that. But that happened. It should be a public conversation at least first. But I think the the, the, the greatest injury would not be, well, uh, too bad for the South Side or we should have more input on some of the stadium details as it might be the financing of it. If the somehow some deal emerged where the state or the city were picking up the tab for Jerry Reinsdorf again, for crying out loud, the shame on us. That's exactly the point. And I... I and my neighbors are not expressing uh, opposition to the idea of having the Sox in 78, but we've had enough of public financing for public for stadiums, privately owned or not. Um, we don't necessarily want to be stuck with a, another stadium either. We don't necessarily want to own a new stadium. But, but meanwhile, there is, and I've talked about this before too, this one central development that's out there in the ether uh, which would be the 30 acres between McCormick Place and Soldier Field, basically only across the street uh, on the uh, west side of Lakeshore Drive, where a private developer has won legislative approval for $6.5 billion, with a B, in taxpayer subsidy for infrastructure for that project. And if the bearers are truly looking at the South Lot as a location for a new stadium, you can bet one central will be part of the deal and that money will be back on the table. Well, it is on the table. No one's taken it away. The governor has to approve it. He's ordered a feasibility study trying to slow walk the thing, but it's out there. So how many billions of dollars are we going to spend for private development? Brandon, Brandon Johnson does not want to be the mayor who lost the bears. Right. Uh, and and uh, he or the White Sox, for that matter, the White Sox mm-hmm. could go to the suburbs. It could go to Nashville. Uh, he doesn't want to be that mayor. On the other hand, he's going to use almost certainly our money, our taxpayer money to for the infrastructure improvements that are needed around a stadium like mm-hmm. that. And and uh, which is a legitimate I, use of public money. It's a public. Yeah. It, it can be. There are interesting studies. I think it's Alan Sanderson at the University of Chicago who's done studies about the impact of these stadiums, and he yeah. studies Olympics and things like that. And, and most of these things tend to be boondoggles, that, that they don't end up enriching a, a, a city or making a city a, a better place to live or boosting the bottom line. That she, that they You don't think that having the Bears and the White Sox in Chicago makes Chicago a better place to live? Oh, it does, for sure. The question is, is, does it pay off? I mean, of course, you bring people in, you know, traveling people come in, they stay at the hotels and so on. Yes, absolutely, they do. That boosts the bottom line. The question is, where did that bottom line start after all the investment that we put into it? If, if the Bears abandon Soldier Field, you're going to have this shell of a stadium that, that they say, oh, we can use it for more outdoor concerts. I mean, honestly, that's not... Soldier Field will be a, a white elephant. People are very sentimental about it because it's a memorial to fallen uh, soldiers. So they're not going to tear it down, which they probably just should. Uh, if they're going to build another stadium, then they ought to just build another stadium there and raise that and have it be parkland. Um, so, so I, you know, I would really like to see uh, these teams which make lots and lots of money and these leagues that make lots of money mm. invest in their own damn stadiums uh for the most part now yeah if you want infrastructure around the around the perimeter okay maybe we can talk about that but but actually helping them build a, st- a stadium no, i don't think so <laughs> not anymore i i don't i don't like the idea let's do i don't that. know how we get our money's worth to your point eric when we've got nearly 700 million already you know invested in the existing 
stadiums. And also, when the Lucas Museum was proposed, uh, wasn't there an environmental issue um, that if they dig up that south lot, there was some environmental issue uh, with the site. I thought the big issue was the charter itself, that you, they shouldn't be developing the land on that side, right? It's a little bit of both. I have not read or heard much about whether – is Los Angeles glad that it has – I was wondering that. <laughs> I was wondering that. Is that all that in a bag of chips? I don't – I haven't followed up on how great it is. The, I, the museum itself did not sound all that enticing to me, frankly. It's like you get to walk through and see memorabilia from the filming of these movies. Now, I'm not, I'm not a Star Wars geek – uh, so I'm not, and I think it was going to be more that. than that. But that's what it always oh, no, sounded it like. Yeah, and, no, and but that was the problem. Than, but... I don't think they ever sold it to us. I don't know if it was a good idea anyway. But I think the pitch was always bad on that, Eric. Well, let's mm-hmm. let's uh, research that, and for the next episode, someone will get back to us on whether it was and, a good idea. And real Brandon, quickly, we'll, I will say Brandon there was an environmental concern, which I did double check my yeah. memory on that. Uh, some chemicals based uh, uh, dating back to the Chicago Fire. Wow. And then they moved them to Brighton Park, I believe, is where they uh, took all those chemicals and put them. <laughs> the, best picture, the best picture nominees for the Oscars are American Fiction, Anatomy of a Fall, Barbie, The Holdovers, Killers of the Flower Moon, Maestro, Oppenheimer, Past Lives, Poor Things, Zone of Interest. Uh, that's not news, but um, Kate had an idea, and I think we all kind of like it, to just give our recommendations or thoughts about some of these between now and the Oscars itself. We won't dwell on all of them, but I think all of I've seen six of the ten so far. I think I've seen six also. Three and a half. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm slowly working my way through Killers of the, of the Flower yeah. Moon. You've got weeks. <laughs> Take your time. I've seen three. I've seen Maestro, Oppenheimer, and Barbie. Eric, on a scale of one to 23 Jujubes, what did you give Barbie? How much did you like that movie? I like Barbie a lot. I, I thought I did maybe too. 19 Jujubes. I watched the movie twice. I was um, entertained each time. I thought the performances were great. I'm not even into the whole controversy, legitimate as it is, about Greta Gerwig not getting a nomination and so forth. Um, but I thought the movie was fun. You know, the lens through which I saw Barbie was that of a middle-aged white male. So <clears throat> maybe... Some of the messaging was either lost on me or was about me. But for the people who took more away from it than I did, uh, what I got out of it was still fun. It was worth it was worth two views for me. I enjoyed it. I saw it with uh, a young woman uh, who had a very different. It was her third time. She said, <laughs> "You know, any time you want to go, I'll go with you." So really? I took her. She is, uh, I think, forty-ish, late thirties, probably. And um, it, she loved it more than I did, but she enlightened me. We stood on the sidewalk for about half an hour talking about it uh, after the show. For me, I thought the feminism was stale because, like, if you didn't get that by, I mean, the America Ferrera speech was wonderful. But if you didn't get that by now in 2024, are you ever going to? On the other hand, a lot of people who didn't get it got it out of Barbie there's nothing wrong with that. And my younger friend felt very empowered to see that stated on the screen the way it was. Um, and she was thrilled that that would be the message of a movie hmm. that would get so much attention. Um, so I back it for that. Best picture? No, um, I don't think so. Entertaining? Yes. Interesting. Fun to watch. Um, the director got slighted. If it's best picture, traditionally, how does the director not get a nomination and my god if if uh Margot Robbie. holdovers is in there then the bar is pretty low 
I agree with you on that. Uh, Margot Robbie didn't get nominated either. Uh, no, America Ferrera did. And for that speech, I would say, for that mm-hmm. monologue she gave about feminism and the patriarchy. Kate, did you like the movie a lot? I liked it. But now, what is the scale of the – what is the Jujube scale? It's 1 to 23. What's the upper limit? 23 is high. 23 is the highest in the Jujube uh, scale? Aff- affirmative, yes. John gets to put in 13 of the Jujubes, and then you get the rest. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hybrid system. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess I would give it in the vicinity of 15 Jujubes. Wow. Wow. I liked it. That's I mean, I, think, I yeah. think it was a lot of fun as a summer fun blockbuster. It was, it was all that. I mean, Margot Robbie... Ryan Gosling, all great. To to Marge's point, that was my biggest problem with it, was that they were writing it as if we were still living in, instead of 2023 at that time, more like 1963 or 73. 83, 90. Not even hardly 83. Really? Because I, uh, I felt that those that's issues were... the closest you could get. You could yeah. maybe say 83, but th- that's the closest you could get. Those are more recent historical grievances, but they weren't current issues. That, it, However resonant her speech was, it felt a little dated. Is is that what you ladies are saying? Well, yes and no. I mean, her speech obviously is... Because I don't want to... Because I know, <laughs> I know I don't know. That's the it's thing. I like. I thought she was pretty and he was funny. I, I thought it was a really fun movie. And I thought, yeah. oh, I don't, I don't know if this is working, but I know... And maybe that's the problem. I couldn't score that. And it's about the me's of the world. But I, I, was, I, I felt like some of those issues just weren't clicking the way they would have mm-hmm. 10, 20... 40 years ago, but I'm asking you ladies about that. Yeah. If I I could put a spoiler alert out here. So if you, anybody listening, if you haven't seen it yet, turn it off for a second. Okay. Because it's the very end that got me. She had, they had a big surprise for her and the big explosive benefit. Now that she's human, I didn't think she'd be getting a vagina, which is a nice thing for her, but I thought she'd be CEO of Mattel. Oh, that's... Something like that, too. Yeah. And that was a letdown for me. She's just yeah. going to go away, you know, with her feminine sexuality, which is, you know, a good reward for being a human. But what happened to the power structure? They still going to be all men around the table at Mattel? They didn't learn anything. And mm. neither did we, maybe. Maybe that's asking the movie to do more than it was supposed to do. But maybe not. They went down that lane, right, Marge? That's, that's right. They, they, they set this up. Yeah. They They weren't satisfied with saying we made a really fun, beautiful, well-acted, Clever. funny movie. Yeah. They also want it to be a huge political statement. But they're making a statement that is not radical, has not been radical for at least 40, 50 years. And also... The whole thing about Barbies, the Barbie doll itself, raising these crazy physical expectations for the girls who are playing with them. They they brought up that issue. The America daughter herself voices that, you know, we hate you, Barbie. You, you know, you always made us feel bad about ourselves. How is that solved? That's never solved. How many jujubes from how many jujubes from Marge and John on this? We have Kate Kate and I have weighed in. Yeah, what was your number again, Eric? Mine was nineteen and Kate's was fifteen. I, I was nineteen. 
You're 19. I think I'll match Kate at 15. <laughs> wow, okay. I, I, I can't help but note the way we've scored that. And now we've run out of time. We spent a lot on it, but uh, so we'll plow through a few more of these that we'll all go see. Um, maybe next week. We could talk about Maestro and holdovers together in the amount of time Barbie took. <laughs> okay, we'll, 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 we'll put those two for now. Maestro and, and the holdovers. holdovers. That's your assignment. Where do we stream? Where do we stream holdovers uh, on the play on the streaming places? I'm not sure, but it is available. I'll give you my password if you need it, Eric. All right, there we go. <laughs> uh, Marge and Kate and Eric. A uh, lot of time today. A lot of topics today. A lot of fun today. Thanks for being part of the Mincing Rascals podcast. We're produced by Ben Anderson and Pete Zimmerman. I'm John Williams. We'll drop another pot on you next week. See you guys. That was fun, ladies. There's a lot of time, and gentlemen. You know, you use the word ladies, and you know, I'm a, I'm a uh, in my spare time. One of the things I do is I call square dances and barn dances. Um, and there's a whole controversy in the co- traditional dance community about ladies and gents, and whether you refer to dance pe- dancers as ladies and gents, uh, because these are overly gendered terms. And they've been uh, getting on the cases of some of us older traditional callers to change our terminology to and. Do now, now we use larks and robins. Larks are gents and robins are ladies, and I can go into this whole thing. And it was, and it has roiled the traditional dance community uh, in America for. Are larks men though? I mean, is, are they still uh, gender specific? Larks, and and it's because uh, yeah. First of all, it fits better with with calling larks and gents fits the pat, the rhythm of the calling better, and robins and ladies it works better. And also, R is right, and ladies tend to be uh, ladies. Part is danced on the right. Oh, so and larks are larks on the on the left. And, Why don't uh, they just call it left and right and let people self-select? Well, they do. They do let people self-select, and that's and that's one of the things that gave rise to it, which was that uh, uh, there are a lot of a lot of uh, non-binary people like to dance. A lot of people who who, who uh, uh, there's some trans people who like to dance who don't like to be associated with one gender or the other, and there are also people who like to dance the other part. The in in this kind of dancing, the 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 male part, the gents part, tends to be the lead. And the and the women's part tends to follow more, and then and the, and you know if you want to dance the lead part, you know you you have to be called a gent, and people didn't didn't like that. And, and I've I've made the transition as a caller. It's but it really was, you do larks and robins. I do larks and robins now. Yeah, just take this off the podcast. But I was just saying, you know, this is the I, best I thing we've done on the podcast. Are you kidding me? <laughs> this is much better than what I was doing. Um, anyway, all right, we'll do another pod next week. Thank you, kids. Enough of that. Thank you, See persons. You. Thank you, units. Thanks, I, so. Thank you, whatever Bye-bye. you are. Good to see y'all. Bye. Human beings. Good job. Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com. 